Hiya, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. We're into August, we're into the summer season, lots of people on holiday, no one replying to emails. Um, so I've sort of stopped posting quite as frequently on the blog, doing about three a week at the moment. So I'll catch you up on the last two weeks and then I'm not quite sure when I'll do another one of these, maybe next week or maybe when I'm back from holiday because I'm going to Edinburgh for the uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which we try and go to every year. Fantastic, intense immersion in lots of really brilliant theatre and music and um, stand-up and stuff. Um, so we'll see. But anyway, for now, let's catch up. So the first links I liked, it was basically during the middle of the heat wave and it was so hot that I couldn't read anything. So I just um, linked to a lot of graphics. There's no point in talking about them on the blog. The second post was a, a long and really interesting post about Peru from Enrique Mendizabal, who, who uh, works at the On Think Tanks um, organization. And he's looking at the nature of politics, elite bargaining and change over 20 years in Peru. And I like these kind of long durée, kind of reflections. <clears throat> it's quite a long piece, but bear with me. So change is not linear. Policy change is not the end of the story. The relationships between evidence and policy is not linear. Politics matters. Research matters very little. Individuals and individual organisations can do very little. Great start to a blog post. At On Think Tanks, we've been making these points for over a decade. Events in Peru can now help us illustrate them and remind us that we mustn't simply focus on change. We must pay more attention to how we achieve it or change can quickly unravel. Interesting initial thesis. So he summarises the last 20 years of progressive change in Peru. So in the early 2000s, Peru was on the path of liberal democratic reform, a first wave of democratic gains, followed by the introduction of important re reforms on things like targeted cash tra transfers, new ministries of environment, development and culture, minimum standards for teachers, radical higher education reform, transport sector improvements, incorporation of gender policies, Lots of really good things happening in Peru. And it coincided with an economic bonanza um, due to the commodity boom. And that meant that Peru's economy boomed and with it came this great surge in Peru, Peruvian cuisine, um, creative industries, a new elite and a, a middle class. So, you know, great start to the century. And then the last 10 years, um, the public debate addressed issues like gay marriage, the decriminalisation of cannabis, and evidence-informed policy agenda gripped the policy elite's aspirations. A liberal democratic narrative arose, pro-markets, pro-rights, pro-environment. Calls for a meritocracy in government and the private sector were heard across the board. There was an elite bargain in favour of progressive change. The diplomatic corps in Lima noticed this, so funding for prog progressive causes and groups increased significantly. These were Peru's new labour years, Enrico says, you know, uh, bouncing off uh, the UK new labour Tony Blair experience. Cool Peruana, um, the new labour used to talk about Cool Britannia. Like the Clinton and Obama years experienced back to back, a sustainable development goals dream. And then suddenly, poof, it all ended. Peru has been cast back to the early 1990s or earlier. We mustn't simply focus on change. We must pay more attention on how to we achieve it or change can quickly unravel. So how did this unravel? Since taking office in July 2021, the so-called left-wing government 
and the ostensibly right-wing National Congress have been working together to dismantle the weak scaffolding that held our infant liberal democracy. This regression is happening against the backdrop of a savage rollback in the state's capacity. The government has removed career civil servants, reneged on the expectation that key ministries should be withheld from political appointees, and acted to undermine the transparency and accountability gains. Many of the gains of the last 20 years were made possible by the research and political participation of social scientists from a handful of think tanks and universities in Lima. These researchers' work and careers are closely linked to the long-term support provided by funders like IDRC in Canada, the UK's FCDO, formerly DFID, USAID or the Ford Foundation, the Open Society Foundations and the European Union. Researchers and graduates from these institutions populated the ministries of finance, trade, development, culture and environment. Many worked in rights-based NGOs. They set the political, economic and social narratives through op-eds and regular commentaries in the mainstream and independent media. Some of the funders took notice of their grantees' new powers and celebrated them with features on their websites, annual reports, invitations to join global project boards and present at international conferences and by offering more funding. This is the best indicator of our success, one funder told me. They, our grantees, are now in a position to change everything. But something else happened during that progressive period that sowed the seeds for what's happening now. I returned to Peru in 2013, after over a decade in the UK, where critique, critique was common at think tank events. And I noticed that at events in Lima, criticism of the government's policies was rare. At one event, a researcher highlighting issues in a flagship social development programme was told by the head of research in one of Peru's leading universities not to be mean to the minister as they were friends of the house, amigos de la casa. For a while, especially between 2013 and 2017, there seemed to be nothing left to debate. At that time, a former minister and later an advisor to ministers and aid agencies stated on a column, we already know what works. This was just a call to let the experts get on with their job. At this time, the ministries of environment, development, education and culture were filled by a new cadre of liberal Democrats, newly returned from postgraduate studies in Europe and North America. I jokingly called them the hipster government. Although this sounds promising, it also paved the way for today's regression. Their proposed reforms were copies of European ones, but without the years of debate that led to them, they weren't appropriate for the Peruvian context. But the media was largely supportive. The new progressive digital media was happy to adopt what these experts said was absolute truth. International organisations, funders, universities and think tanks helped create the illusion that Peru was living in an era of liberal consensus. Our technocrats were invited to international events and hailed as changemakers. Questions about the proposed pace of change in such a conservative country were dismissed. Suggestions that new policies required adjustments were rejected. But criticism and opposition did exist. The owners of universities shut down by the state oversight body organised themselves into political parties. Teachers formed new unions that were opposed to the meritocratic reforms in their sector. Conservative groups mobilised and claimed to represent the interests of all parents. They all built alliances with each other and with subnational political movements. They developed strong narratives, strategies 
and evidence bases to push back against the liberal agenda. And their interests coincided with some of the traditional parties, corporate groups, including the media and rich influential individuals who saw the policies and policymaking style of the progressive technocrats as a threat to their values, interests and power. The opposing sides of issues or debates became increasingly polarised as there were no spaces to meet and explore similarities or consensus. Many people who might have compromised were lost to the extremes. The middle ground was increasingly seen as bland and weak until it eventually disappeared altogether, crushed between extremist forces at the 2021 general election. Without a middle ground, the only option was radical change, meaning that 20 years of reform was undone. What can we learn from Peru? This is one Peruvian account of what happened. Others may recount it differently, but there are important lessons. Systems, institutions and organisations are more important than individuals. We've had very capable ministers, advisors and officers passing through several ministries and public bodies throughout the last 20 years in Peru. But in the end, it proved very easy to erase all professional and progressive expertise from the system. The absence of debate isn't evidence that there's nothing else to debate. We've seen here how a small group of people and organisations in Peru controlled the policy and intellectual agendas. They acted as the gatekeepers of what could and couldn't be discussed. The fortunes of these few turned because people and organisations with opposing views didn't simply accept defeat. They developed their own arguments and strategies to regain control. When there's no debate or opportunities to engage with opposing views, there's no opportunity to find common ground. It's unfair to label the groups that emerged because of this as irrational or radical when the progressives did little to find common ground. Policymaking should be a negotiation. A good result isn't necessarily when one group gets everything they want. Policy processes aren't that straightforward. Think tanks and experts must take some responsibility for Peru's setbacks. The experts and think tanks who rode the wave of impact over the last two decades are partly responsible for the setbacks that Peru is experiencing today. They actively contributed to the quest for short-term impacts, to the absence of debate, to the exclusion of intellectual dissent, and to the destruction of the middle ground. And obviously this isn't just a Peruvian tale. I'm hearing echoes of, you know, um, governments in America and here, you know, the complacent bubble government will eventually be undone. So in every gut context and country, we should always remember that individuals and individual organisations can do very little. Research matters very little. Politics matters. The relationship between evidence and policy is not linear. Policy change is not the end of the story. Change is not linear and progress is not inevitable. And I think we should all just have that written up over our workstations. Third post of the week was just to tell everybody a very boring technical issue, but we're moving the uh, site for from poverty to power um, and it's just giving details to people to say if you bookmark from poverty to power if you have it on your uh, if you still have an RSS feed or however else you get access to the blog please shift it to the new URL the new um, domain name so that we uh, will make sure we stay in touch and that was the last post of that week and I said back to blogging as usual next week once the lionesses have won the euros and they did. It was amazing. England won the Euro, the the women's Euro football competition. So fantastic memes, fantastic event. 
lots of lots of great fodder for my timeline and i'm sure lots of it will reappear at some point in links i liked or somewhere else following week got stuck in with never heard of human rights economics you have now so this is an interesting new paper by caroline Dommen. Uh, with an ambitious purpose to brand and describe a new branch of economics, human rights economics. Her start, starting point, in many ways, economic thought and practice currently disregard human rights. Human rights economics is of the view that the world needs an economic system that is fairer for people and planet, that promotes social and economic justice, that integrates a plurality of views and traditions, and that is consistent with human rights in both its processes and outcomes. So she argues that human rights can help us challenge some of the assumptions that cause economics to be out of step with some of today's key challenges, such as overconsumption of natural resources or growing inequalities. So when I was reading this paper, it felt like you know, a sort of sister paper to Kay Rayworth's original Donut Economics paper uh, on, on sustainability and environment, but this time on human rights. And I think they go very well together. Um, and her conclusion is that... Uh, as I just said, human rights economics shares many of the perspectives of other branches of economics, such as donut economics, ecological economics, feminist economics, or stratification economics. I don't know what that is. It also shares many of the perspectives and objectives of alternative approaches and discourses, such as heterodox economics, buen vivir, or well-being economy. Beyond this, in a number of respects, human rights economics can help push the boundaries of mainstream economics for instance, by bringing the human rights legal framework and implementation mechanisms to bear, or by drawing attention to the blind spots of other branches of economics. So, interesting. I mean, perhaps the most important strand of work going forwards is to demonstrate the relevance and applicability of human rights in economics. Positive examples of how human rights can inform and influence economic policy include initiatives such as UK studies on distributional impacts of tax and welfare reforms on groups of people who are vulnerable to discrimination, human rights-based economic justice advocacy in South Africa, and human rights audits of economic policy in the USA and Mexico. So this is ambitious stuff. I mean, a lot of it may well be repackaging existing bits of economics, but I think giving it this human rights framework does give it a sort of legal sort of substance and consistency which which is a useful addition um, so i'll be interested to see what people think and whether people think it will catch on and then i basically handed over for the summer to my students uh, i teach a course on activism a master's course on activism um, at the lse and it's huge fun and the one of the assignments for the students is that they have to come up with a campaign that they feel passionately about and they have to use all the, the analytical tools to design a campaign strategy. And then they have to write a blog or record a vlog, a video blog uh, about the campaign. And they get a small part of the mark for the blog. And I took some of the best blogs and vlogs. And I'm going to post these over the next few weeks, um, partly because I'm going on holiday. And it's a great way to keep the blog ticking over. But also it's because the students have worked really hard. And it's really nice to be able to highlight some of their work. So we started off with uh, Yosma Sahail um, on uh, what about waste workers in Karachi. And I'll just, uh, all the blogs are Merce, a bit shorter than mine, so I'll read out hers and not mess about with it too much. Karachi is so dirty, heaps of rubbish, a city incapable of tolerating a rain shower because its sewer system is clogged. 
garbage garbage dumps overflowing. And while we shake our heads in dismay and blame the government, an elusive concept no one really knows who they are referring to when they say that, the sanitary workers, the waste collectors, the janitors come out and do their work. And our collective humanity fails us. Perhaps nowhere more do we see this apathy than when looking at them, the outcasts, the ones termed dirty, unclean, impure, churas, the untouchables, the ones who clean, collect, rinse, dispose, recycle our waste, often with their bare hands, plunging into manholes, inhaling toxic fumes. In return for their service, what do they get? Advertisements specifically looking for non-Muslim minority groups to be deemed fit to do this unclean job. No holidays, no pensions, no safety equipment, no medical insurance, no benefits, no compassion. And that needs to change. What can I do? It's just the way it is. There are no laws in this country. I can almost hear the responses of people, feeling twinges of sympathy for this cause, but shrugging it away with a feeling of what can I do? Well, as it turns out, surprise, surprise, there are laws in this country and they aren't being implemented. You can do something about it. Let's start with Karachi. I can't help it. I have two decades worth of a love-hate relationship going on with it. The Sindh Solid Waste Man Management Board employs these sanitation workers themselves or through contractors, but fails to register them with employees' benefits and social security. Uh, the, the Sindh Acts on Employee Benefits and Social Security both require the Sindh Solid Manage uh, Waste Management Board to register their employees with it. What they're doing is not only morally and ethically wrong, it's illegal. And I would argue that exposure to manholes, Karachi's air, hazardous waste materials and toxic gases calls for medical benefits, pensions and insurance a lot more than other jobs. It's the bare minimum we can do for our workers in a system which has given them hardly anything. So we need to register its sanitary workforce with those bodies now, but they don't. Here's where we come in. We need to pressurise them, hold them accountable. Hashtags, emails, letters, messages, what have you. Email the relevant authorities, flood their Instagram DMs, hold them accountable. Groups like Justice for Janitors and Sweepers, and Sweepers are Superheroes, will be there to guide you on how to reach them. They'll even give you a template. You just need to send it. They'll also give you the names of the people you need to send messages to. All your work is done. Just press Control CV here and send. You have the right to information under the Constitution. Raise that right for the people who need it the most. Ask those organisations for the records. Question why they're not there. You have a voice. They will listen. They are legally bound to. The Sint High Court already has and sent notices on legal wage implementation. Let's keep the momentum going. And maybe at the end of it, all our noise will ensure that those workers are registered. To workers who risk it all to clean our waste, access to their security, cost of medical bills and pensions is a legal, justifiable and most importantly, humane demand. The authorities must do better and we need to make sure they don't get away with it. Let's make it happen. So I hope that gives you an idea about why working with students like Yosma is the highlight of my year. They've got sort of fantastic passion, super smart, trying to make change happen in a kind of combination of, of that passion with sort of analytical tools. And we at LSE help them develop those. And then the idea is that they go back out and make stuff happen back in, in, in country. And I'll be putting up a whole pile of these posts over the course of August. 
and you really should come on and read them because they are great. Have a good weekend. I'm buoyed by reading that and uh, I'm looking forward to the weekend as well. Bye.